0: Hey, everyone. Welcome once again to the Conversations That Matter podcast. I'm your host, John Harris. A little under the weather this morning. Thank you for those who uh, are praying for me. I know I announced that on the Truth Script podcast on Tuesday, and I'm getting a little better, but it is slow. So I don't know if I picked up something on the airplane or, or what. But um, but anyway, I uh, am excited today uh, to have our guest. He's going to do most of the thinking, so I don't have to, you know, in my <laughs> mentally sick brain here. Um we have uh, we have actually someone who's been on the podcast before, Dr. Scholz, who uh, was, if you recall, at Concordia University. And I think, Dr. Scholz, are you still at Concordia University, technically? I,
1: yeah. Thanks. First, John, I just wanted to say it's it's a real privilege and blessing to be talking with you again, uh, and your listeners. So yes, I'm uh, technically still on the faculty. Have been in. Uh, Exile, I suppose, for a okay. little over two years well, now, pro- prohibited to teach and even go on campus, actually.
0: Well, we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, yeah. But uh, Dr. Uh, Gregory Schultz has a new book that's out. That's one of the, the reasons, the main reason, actually, um, that he's on today. And I want to show you all that. That's his website If you want to find out more about his writings, Lutheran But you can get his book. You go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble um, Anatomy of an Implosion which is a, a very, I, I, you know, with the, the new sort of masculine movement in Christianity uh, you definitely have a cover that fits that with the <laughs> Roman soldier right there. So um, check that out. And we're going to be talking about it, but let, let's start here. Uh, Dr. Scholz, um, How are you doing? I mean, you just mentioned you can't even go on the campus you teach at, but you're technically on the faculty.
1: How does that work? Oh, thanks, John. Um, I'm well in the Lord. If, uh, you know, if it is an exile, it's a pretty well-populated island of Patmos, or however you want to do that. So, um, got a lot of uh, friends. Um, I, I certainly do miss teaching my students, um, and I think um, not breaking any rules here to say that if, uh, as you and your listeners take a look at some of the reporting online at the Federalist about things, or um, I've included texts of those in the book too, so everybody can read it there. Um, you'll see that, uh, actually, it just does not look like they want me back. And uh, lawyers have been commenting that uh, things should be brought to some sort of conclusion here. So without, without saying much more, I'm uh, uh, regrettably realizing that uh, there's just no place for me there under uh, the circumstances at my university. And we did a podcast now, I want to say, what, a year
0: and a half ago, maybe? Yeah, um, almost two years, I think. Almost two years yeah. ago. Wow. Wow, how time goes. Um, and you were opposing some of the critical race theory teachings, essentially, that were, were going on in, in not just classes, but coming down from the administration. And uh, and that really has given you the the scarlet letter, so to speak. And um, I know you're not the only one, but you're someone who's been bold enough to actually be vocal about this. And and, and we're very appreciative of that. I mean, that's we need more people like you. Um, are you are, are you doing ministry anywhere uh, at, at like a local church or?
1: Um, yes, well, yeah, right. So um, I do get get involved for guest preaching and and assisting with liturgy and so forth. But um, at the moment, I've been going kind of far, um, perhaps with some open doors from the Lord. I've have done some uh, teaching and lecturing in South Africa last summer was there for about a month and wow. um, this year i've been invited to we have a, a lutheran seminary in kenya uh, if uh, if you or your viewers are familiar with that movie out of africa or perhaps denison's book by the same title uh, i understand that it's this is gonna be my first time there it's uh, just over the hills from where she had her coffee farm in africa um so some seminary teaching um there so I've got some some work to do. Wow.
0: Okay. So you're uh, you're you're an international. You're Indiana Jonesing it a little bit across ah. the world <laughs> with your teaching there. So no, that's yeah. that's great. I'm glad that um, that that you have found places or people have found you uh, mm-hmm. to use the gifts that you have. Um, this new book, may, maybe that's what we need to do now is just switch gears. Unless there was something else, I mean, that, that you wanted to share with people. Uh, we we can just talk about your book and and you know what people can glean from it, why you wrote it, and that kind of thing.
1: Sure, let's do
0: that. OK, so the the first question you're always supposed to ask any author is, why'd you write it? <laughs> so why'd you write <laughs> uh, this book, and, and what do you hope to accomplish?
1: Yeah, so um, the why write it um, has, has to do with the same reason that after doing my best to talk to administrators and board members and so forth at my university, why I knew I had to um, publish my doctrinal and philosophical concerns about woke Marxism at uh, my Concordia University. So the, the um, reason for writing it could probably be boiled down to confession. So I think we've got very similar vocabulary on this, but in uh, the Lutheran discussion, we sometimes um, pile up extra words to be sure that we're defining ourselves well. And we generally don't talk about ourselves in my church body as uh, just Lutheran, but we talk about ourselves as being confessional Lutherans. And then, as you know, and as I uh, write about it some length in the book, to confess means to speak in line in the first place with God's authoritative word. So um, there was a, a call for repentance to my university administration and board of regents by our church body president about a year ago, um, but there has been no repentance. There's been, I think, kind of an effort to suggest that there's just a reset going on and nothing to be seen here. I know that's not the case. So the thesis of the book um, is a confessional one, and it has to do then with um, my conviction, as I, I hope a thoughtful person, that it's the conditions at the university, not just the announcement, the very public announcement for the better part of two years that they wanted a woke president, but it's the conditions that would have allowed that sort of thing to happen. And it turns out that um, that's a, a pretty profound institutional culture problem, interestingly enough, that my university, among other things, is not adhering to our Lutheran confessions, though claiming to be a confessional institution. Now, what about the outcome? Um, you mentioned in passing that Roman soldier on the that centurion on the cover of the book. Um, I've I've got a longer story about that if we've got time to get to it. But um, my conviction is this, John. I think that the people in the front lines, the those who take upon themselves the title of leadership, are are simply falling down on the job. And I, I think it's pretty close to if it isn't actually. Uh, a surrender, uh, our Christian colleges should at a bare minimum be a high fidelity alternative to the public or government schools in our country. And we are falling down on that rather terribly. So I think the thing is to turn to the rank and file, to turn to um, the pastors in the congregations, the members of the congregations, the laity, and to give them as much information and as much, um, I'll go ahead and say biblical analysis as possible.
0: Yeah, we well, you know. I was at a Lutheran event, I don't know, a year ago, something like that. Mm-hmm. And it, it was like, a, um, I think they called it a colloquy. <laughs> and yeah. I presented, it was some Lutheran pastors there, uh, a vision for so it said something similar to, I think, what you just articulated that the way orthodoxy is going to be preserved and the best way is through local pastors, local congregations. It seems like the institutions are far gone at this point, which for different denominations, that's met differently. I mean, Baptists, I think have a little easier time with that just because they're so independent anyway. Hmm. Uh, But it struck me that the Lutherans are more hierarchical and that that was a, a difficult thing to, um, embrace from from i guess my perspective just reading the temperature of the room and uh, and and giving similar messages in other places um i mean do you think so the book that you've written is for christians more broadly but you know i know you're writing from a lutheran context is this something that lutherans uh you think will embrace or are they going to still keep giving their finances to concordia and maybe some of these other places even though they know that they're compromised?
1: Yeah, I think um, we can talk a little bit about some evidence that things are are imploding, as I say in the book, financially also. But um, I think what I'd like to do, John, is uh, respect your notion about being more hierarchical. That makes sense to me. But I'd prefer to say being more corporate. Mm. So um, I, I If I need any forgiveness for this, I think people understand. I I really don't think that you can trust people who have the um, label of president in front of their job title right now. Um, And I'm going to go ahead and say I feel very skeptical about this in my own church body. One of the reasons is that when a person is doing this president stuff, he has um, a presumptive allegiance to maintain the institution that he's president over. And a fundamental question to ask is first of all, is the corporate model at all acceptable in the church? I believe we're seeing right now why it never should have been. But just to put it in a turn of phrase that, um, you know, as Bible believing folks, we would all recognize, um, these church institutions should not identify as corporations. I'm not commenting on the legal ins and outs of it. But they shouldn't identify as corporations in the way they think and operate. They should be thinking about themselves not as corporations, but as corpus meum, as Jesus would say if, if he were speaking in Latin. You know, my body. Um, and that that's a fundamental problem. So, I I don't know, um, and maybe I'm not competent to comment on how the church body is going. So, I'm going to say I'm maintaining as best I can, a pretty narrow concern and focus with Lutheran higher education. And I would guess, though I don't know for sure, John, that in um, evangelical circles, I really think that our educational work is comparable to world missionary work for us. This is mm-hmm. this is the thing that we really bring, um, you know, everything from kindergarten on up through, through our seminaries and post-grad work uh, we come from Wittenberg University, right? So we're, though we often forget it, um, we've got you know some major obligations in the area of education. That's where we came from, a, a Lutheran university. And that I think we are, are failing at. Um, so as we're talking here, uh, we're in the week right after Ash Wednesday. On Ash Wednesday, there was an announcement that came out from my university, Concordia University, Wisconsin, they have a second campus that has been under their wing for a number of years in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And uh, the new president at Concordia, Wisconsin announced that they were cutting back severely on the campus in Ann Arbor, Michigan for financial reasons. Uh, the, the language you know, is usually pretty guarded and about as optimistic as a person can make it. Uh, but reading just a little bit between the lines, it looks like that Um, campus to the great regret of the students, especially, but also my faculty colleagues there is going to be cut back severely. Um, So part of the part of the response here um, is that I don't exactly know about the church's reaction um, all by itself, as much as the financial entanglements and the consequences of that, you know, for our universities, I would imagine it's much the same for you, though I don't know. Uh, very few of us are like Hillsdale, uh, where the, the um, mission has been to stay free of government entanglement for the sake of preserving the doctrine and teaching you need to do as a Christian school of higher learning. Um, right, right. This entanglement with, uh, with the federal government, which is just you know on a tear against Christianity and every other good and decent thing right now, um, this, this is just wreaking great harm. Not to mention the accreditation stuff, which sort of cements that.
0: Uh, Just a reminder reminder to everyone who's listening right now, if you have questions for Dr. Scholz, you can go to YouTube or Facebook where we are streaming and you can post a comment and Dr. Schultz, I I will relay the message and we will uh, see if if we we can get an answer. So um, Dr. Schultz, you say uh, in your your book, I just had it pulled up, page 152, uh, wokeism is afflicting the consciences of students. Faculty and supporters of Concordia, therefore, programmatic, systemic wokeism merits reconsideration. It also merits personal and institutional repentance. Now, the thing I find interesting about this is this is exactly right. Right, the language you're using. I don't know if this was on purpose, but the language that the woke uh, movement uses, right, is is similar. Like they will say that probably Concordia uh, would need to repent of its systemic racism, right? As an institution, they, they need to do institutional repentance. You're flipping that and you're saying, actually, they need to uh, repent of their wokeism. Uh, was that on purpose <laughs> that you use that
1: language? Sure, it was. Um, who who wants to give up our perfectly solid, wonderful and biblical terminology to these um angry Marxist people who want to overthrow everything. So um, I, of course I mean it. And then uh, it also is the case that, um, you know, in that quote you you uh, cited, I mentioned it's both for the institution and for the individuals involved. So um, though the US Supreme Court, I understand, considers corporations to be persons for all intents and purposes. We know that's not the case. That's kind of a, a misplaced, a fallacy of misplaced concreteness. The, the um, concern is for the individuals in leadership. And as I've been saying, most importantly, for the faculty who do the real work at the university after all, and the students who are you know supposed to be the soul of, of our work at the universities, and um, that, interestingly enough, in the in the rush to um, silence me by any means necessary, uh, there's there's been no addressing in print or in public about the harm being done to my faculty colleagues, many I would say, maybe even most, who are um, confessional in the sense I talked about before, very concerned with adherence to the Bible word for word, and the students, we we. Um, Have pre-seminary students, and we have um, students who are headed into the Lutheran teaching ministry, and uh, you know there's just a great deal of harm to people's consciousness. And then we would recognize that in church conversation as our conscience, which is, you know, we're particularly concerned about our relationship to God, and and uh, you know that that we are in a, a passage I've been using a lot that we are at rest in Christ. You know, as Augustine says, you've made us for yourself, Lord, and our hearts are not at rest until we find our rest in you. The restlessness that's being sown uh, by the woke Marxists, including the woke Marxist leaders at our country's universities, is antithetical to the gospel. It's not just, you know, kind of a quirky alternative or something. It is absolutely opposed to Christ and his word. Um, we have a
0: question, looks like from a uh, a listener. I want to, uh, as we get these questions, mm-hmm. I might hold on to some, but this one I want to ask you now. The LCMS has a pastor shortage and it has a university problem too. Should we expect the LCMS to be on its way out? I mean, that's, that's a legitimate, I mean, so, so I guess that would have impact why you wrote the book. Is this for a revival that you're hoping will happen or, or do you, do you see that the Lord has already judged the LCMS?
1: yeah i'm i'm not competent to make that as in an overall assessment by any means uh, but um, I, I would say let's look at the question this way i don't want to be rude to your question or i agree it's a legitimate question but my concern is not trying to pretend to be a prophet of what's going to happen to my church body we know on the one hand that christ's church his church cannot fail. We have his word on that, and and that's a subtle thing. But the question is whether, for instance, the universities in my church body are in line with Christ and his word, that word that will never pass away, or not. That's the question. So my, my existential sensibilities uh, would lead me to contribute this. The question is not, how do we predict this is going to turn out, which gets to look a little bit like being spectators on the whole business. Our question in the Lutheran Church, for instance, needs to be, what can we do to right the ship? Or in the metaphor I use in the book, what can we do to restore a healthy atmosphere for the submarine crew and forestall the implosion of the submarine, the Lutheran University? Well. You know, I can see why someone would ask that question, given the
0: title, (laughs) because it's it's pretty. uh, I mean, it it seems pretty serious. An implosion means things are 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 not just leaking. Like this is seriously awry. This is so. I mean, obviously, this is like level ten red alert. And, um, and and so you're you're giving a a stern warning to the people in your denomination about about what's
1: happening based on the conditions. So, so based on what you could call the culture of the universities, but based on the conditions, there's another reference in the title. Um, about 50 years ago, so let's say that's a generation or two ago, in my church body, there was a major doctrinal problem at one of our seminaries, the one in St. Louis, which resulted in what was called the Seminex explosion. Um, one of, I think one of the- <laughs> Um, professors and pastors that we've had writing over the last uh, decades. Kurt Marquardt wrote a book after um, that that explosion, which he titled Anatomy of an Explosion. And throughout uh, my little book, which uh, uh, just partakes, I think, of the wisdom of Professor Marquardt, really, and applies it to our situation. In my book, I I take up his insights and apply them to what's going on this time not at our seminary, but at our entire uh, Concordia University system. So it is a serious title. And I I have said some pretty serious things in the book. And I am calling for repentance, not not for just, uh, you know, let's just keep on going and see what happens because the conditions that are necessary, are literacy in our scripture, in God's word, and in the Lutheran confessions, which are being deleted um, suppressed and have been for quite some time at my university. I don't know for sure about the other Concordias. And, and so, you know, it's a call for those who have ears to hear. I, I fessed up in the book that I, I have no illusions about the university board or administration necessarily listening to me, but I guess I'll fess up. I still hope that they might. I still hope they might even at this kind of 11th hour. You use the term evil
0: I mean, in the book quite a bit, which is something that uh, that is it's not done in evangelical, popular evangelical yeah. books, right? Um, but you say there can be no accommodation, no appeasement with this evil dogma. You're talking about Marxism. Yes. Um, maybe for those who, who aren't as familiar, um, they haven't listened to our other podcasts on mm-hmm. this. Maybe briefly, could you just walk through... What did what's going on at Concordia or in the LCMS more broadly that causes you to um, make that kind of determination that there's actual evil going on? I mean, obviously you've you've been um, marginalized because of your views, but you know that's just you. Is is this a, a, right. a broader thing, and, and why is this challenging the confessions, or how?
1: Sure. So, um, the the foundation of what I'm offering to folks. Um, first of all, in the in the Lutheran churches, but I've, as I mentioned, I believe it will be helpful to folks um, fighting the good fight in other Christian institutions, too. Uh, the groundwork for what I'm doing is what you could call philosophy of language. So the woke Marxism is not simply doing a George Orwell thing. It's not just newspeak or woke speak that's going on it's a frontal assault on language. Uh, I'm going to say, uh, just mention, uh, I happen to be the professor who was teaching the philosophy of language course at my university, as well, by the way, as the only course on Christ and culture. Um, so the, um, the language thing comes, comes to the heart of it this way. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. God has chosen, though he could do anything, whatever he pleases, right? He has chosen to commune and communicate with human beings through language, the language of scripture, the inerrant, efficacious, right, uh, word of God. We have a, um, a line, a very important line, I think, in our day, especially in our Lutheran confessions, it's in the uh, Apology to the Augsburg Confession, And I'm just going to throw it out in Latin kind of quickly. It's in Article 4 about justification or um, God's atonement and forgiveness for all people. So the line is, God cannot be apprehended, nisi per verbum, except through the word. Now, in the first place, that means Christ, the word of God. Think of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Logos. In the second place, it means all of Scripture, all of its words, all of its books. Um, Think of Jesus in John 5. These are the Scriptures that testify of me. And in Lutheran thought, we have pretty consistently referred to the Scriptures then as the means of grace. So the thing is that in a passage we alluded to before, our Lord reminds us heaven and earth from Matthew's Gospel. Heaven and earth will pass away but my words will never pass away. So we know that God's word is not going to change. Now I'm going to say that in the third place, so that only through the word refers to Jesus as the incarnate word. It refers to all the words of the God-breathed scriptures, all the scriptures, Old and New Testament. And it teaches us about language. So for shorthand, I'm just going to say, language is obviously not an evolutionary accident that that thesis is just tired and threadbare and worthless Um, it is nothing less than a divine gift of god aristotle as many of your listeners will know actually says the human being is essentially the logos being meaning language so what i what i am saying is that it is an evil business. And I I did not refer to any of the people at my Concordia as being evil. I've consistently said that what they're doing is partaking of an evil ideology, which is serious enough. Um, So what, what we have is, I think Satan's last, perhaps last attack on people in the church now after the Reformation is he can't destroy the word. He can't destroy language either but he certainly can see to it that we lose our confidence and trust in language so that we never read the Bible or always think that whatever a pastor preaches to us is open to whatever interpretation we want to give it, which is of course a postmodern and um, fitting philosophy of language to describe what the woke Marxist folks are up to. When you change pronouns, you are affecting human being. You're taking issue with the divine gift of language And um, I'll go ahead and say it, that uh, language of scripture is Jesus speaking. So what you're doing is you're going toe to toe with Jesus. And that sort of stuff um, should never be tolerated in a Lutheran or Christian institution. Uh, But it's, as I said, it's really uh, fentanyl. And why, why, why would a Christian institution that is genuinely Christian. Why would they not, as our confessions tell us, reject and condemn such false dogma as Marxist ideology?
0: Is it really that bad? Like, do you? I, I know that obviously the wokeism is, is there, but like, are people actually using preferred pronouns, or I mean, is that kind of thing happening?
1: Well, um, can I ask? So I know you and I have have talked a little bit off air about um, things in evangelicalism or. Or the Baptist tradition, right? Right. So, what's happening with pronouns and altered words in in your institutions? Uh, yeah, I don't know if
0: I want to claim them <laughs> as my institutions, what? but yeah, what? sure. Um, yeah, in Baptist uh, circles, I, I would say that um, it's not opposed. There, there's been some waffling. At, like, I went to Southeastern, which is a Baptist university, and. Um, there's some prominent, uh, like JD Greer is a prominent graduate. He's very influential there. Now he's not a professor, but he's very tight with the professors there. And he's waffled on this issue, uh, saying that Christians should use preferred pronouns. He actually, um, one of the premier churches, SEBTS students go to is his. And he said that, you know, we should use preferred pronouns. And then later he kind of backtracked on that when he got some heat and, um, But I'll put it this way. There's no strong stand. There's no, you know, white paper that they've, you know, used to condemn that kind of thing. It's more, I think, ignored than anything else. So I don't know. Is
1: that the same kind of thing that you're seeing? Well, yes. And, you know, we could use a litmus test word here, right? Justice. So, yeah, that word's
0: been totally. Yeah. uh, yeah.
1: Eviscerated. (laughs) and. You know, this is this is a biblical term. Yeah. Also the notion of race, race is a biblical concept. It's nothing like what's being taught in uh, racial justice movements in in allegedly Christian churches today. yeah, so what what we've got there, John, I think, is um, maybe those of us who who've been given all of this time and extra education by the Lord's providence, you know, maybe, Folks really need to take a look at the kind of analysis that people like me can make. And I am saying that it's evil to alter pronouns. An attack on language, maybe this would just be non-contentious for your audience. I I don't know. But that's an attack on Aristotle's understanding of the human being. Mm-hmm. This is this is where the attack on our human being is. I've noted that even though, for instance, our normative confessions for how to teach and what to teach, you know, the minimum requirements in in Lutheran education, Um, they use the word nature all the time. And the word nature is actually being, in effect, censored from a lot of conversations, as it is for something that a lot of us have accepted in our professional output, right? Can't use the word nature, it's a Eurocentric word or something. Mm -hmm. But so every, every bit of giving way to that I'm gonna say it comes back to God because this is the gift of language and also um, our Lutheran understanding at any rate is that this is an exclusive means of grace. You cannot, you cannot know what God says apart from his word. We do know how he feels about us, what he thinks, what he has done, what his disposition toward us is. Um, God so loved the world. We know this only because he has said so in his word if we're going to neglect that um we are falling from the faith surely we well, you, you do
0: have uh a section where you this is um under the heading what is the case a comparison of the complaint with what shoals and harrison have written which I, I know is getting into the weeds on some of this lutheran stuff but yeah, yeah. point four Scholl's letters and essay, not incidentally, the BOR committee's posted announcement are unsurprisingly woke in their cavalier altering of texts, true to the woke mindset of the presidential search, search postings, someone or some committee presumed to alter the pronouns in their posted version of our LCMS bylaws. So you do provide examples in your book of yes. some of the, these language alterations, including pronouns.
1: Um, right, there's, there's is, the, yeah, that's very important. Excuse me, that's very important. It's also true that I would guess that um, people are seeing more of this at their universities because this administrations and boards have just done whatever they can get away with. Even things such as the faculty handbooks, which say, this is what you're obliged to do as a professor at this institution. This is the sort of thing that should not be done. Those, those um, you know rules of the road for, for teaching and conduct as a professor, generally now, include and whatever alterations the board or the administration may make at any time. In the case of my administration and board, they just went ahead and made whatever use they wanted to of cherry picked sections of, of these um, handbooks and rules for operation, doing weird things that have never done, never been done with those documents before. Um, so that's a problem, that's a big problem. But now let's go back to that word justice, how about that? Sure, so sure. i think if you're willing to change pronouns you're probably willing to accept all sorts of ditzy notions about justice
0: yeah <laughs>
1: yeah and and in a professor, Vice versa. <laughs> right yeah and in a professor that means that you're not going to be teaching your students to think well and to think biblically so um what i've recommended in one of my chapters is that um for for us uh, as confessional lutherans we've actually said things like this in our confessions the doctrine of justification is the, here's some German, the Hauptartikel. Let's call that the the marquee or the um, organizing article of biblical doctrine. Uh, When people talk about social justice or racial justice, the last thing that they are doing is going to their Bibles to find out what justice means according to God. I would also just add in a certainly crabby, but I think justified um, sense, that they are also um, just showing their, their deliberate ignorance of all of Western thought. Anybody who's ever read or studied in a college class, Plato's Republic, which centers around that Socratic question, what is justice ought to know better. Anyhow, in scripture, you know, we've got the righteousness of God that's a tzaddik in the Old Testament Hebrew, and dikayasene, or parts of the DK word group in the New Testament, that can be translated both righteousness and justice. So what, what you're really doing, um, these uh, social justice warriors, um, and I'm particularly concerned about those in the Lutheran camp, uh, what they're actually doing is saying, we are not, not content. We're not content to teach that, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace, we have to concentrate on other stuff. And and for for self-identified Lutherans to do that is to say, we just don't agree with anything important that Luther said, right? What we're concerned about is diversity, inclusion, and equity. And let's just go ahead and say that equity business is a replacement for justice. So, um the, the language matters. The language matters, John. And what I'm saying is every time that we give an inch in terms of language, we are in education. We are contradicting the Logos himself.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Um, mm-hmm. There's a few questions I want to bring to you. And uh, this is from Carrie Baldwin. Dr. Scholes, does your new book go into the linguistics and philosophy of language you've just discussed?
1: Yeah, thanks, Kerry. That's a great question. So um, linguistics would not be the right way to talk about it, if you don't mind my just being precise, because we've got so little time to to talk about this. I would say philosophy of language. So um, what I argue, especially in the second chapter of my book, is that the philosophy of language... Now remember, uh, John and I have just been talking about how language... Uh, is fundamentally a divine gift of God. And it, the, uh, the scriptures have a contiguity with what we think of as everyday human language. Our everyday human language is not inerrant. It's not authored directly by God. The Holy Ghost isn't breathing out my words, right? But it's still language. Okay, so I do offer, uh, drawing on the terminology of Philip Carey, uh, who's done a lot of writing on Augustine and his view of language, I do offer two competing philosophies of this one phenomenon, this one divine gift of language. One of them um, I refer to following Carry as the e- external efficacious means of grace philosophy. So if you've been with us for, for our time so far, uh, to be means of grace is a reference to Scripture and then to the sacraments that Scripture authorizes. But it's, it's these are the only ways, the only authorized, biblically authorized ways that God works in our lives, works on us heart, mind, soul, uh, consciousness, everything. The other is the one that um, is the hallmark of woke Marxism in my argument, and that would be called the expressivist semiotics view. So semiotics, another perfectly wonderful word, by the way, that's the word semaya that's translated miracle or wonder in John's gospel for the most part. Uh, but that's been used to say that language is merely a bunch of arbitrary symbols that, and here's the expressivist or expressionist part, that express an individual's inner thoughts or feelings to a greater or lesser clarity. This probably comes to, a, um, comes to a head in Jacques Derrida. So what I'm saying is that woke Marxism is powered by a deficient, destructive view of philosophy of language, which is postmodern, uh, from Derrida. So Derrida, um, who well, I mentioned in the book, you, you don't really want to read his books he is so opaque. He's somebody who's absolutely committed to the meaninglessness or the endless interpretation of language, and he writes like that. Um, you need more than a bottle of Excedrin to get through chapters in his books, but you want to catch him in his interviews where he's got to make more sense and has to speak to the point for a little longer. I, I offer some of those citations in that chapter, too. So there we hear Derrida saying things like this. Um, you know, I'm going to paraphrase a lot. I have nothing against Moses and the prophets. I think they're just like other writings from Plato or whomever that I can interpret in any way I want. And I think there's an unexpressed statement there that the Marxists are making use of, and I think Derrida did too. And, therefore, no one's entitled to tell me I'm wrong. I get to say whatever I want to say. I get to say that the word justice means whatever I want it to mean. Um, And then that's there. So it would be um, chapter two in anatomy of an implosion. And uh, I think that uh, since John mentioned my teaching platform, Lutheran philosopher, it'll be okay to say that um, there I have some other of my published essays and so forth on that topic that would be available too.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Uh, some other questions too. Um, now you might not want to answer this one, but uh, von, Brei- von Breihoff, go uh, Gohard. I don't know. Okay, that's the name. I'm curious about what your opinion on Dr. Jordan Cooper is. I don't know if you want to say anything about. You know who Dr. Jordan Cooper is?
1: Barely. Okay. So, so I'm going to plead ignorance here. Um, All right. I I should should mention to our our uh, friend who sent that question in that I do have one or two books about Cooper at the bottom of my to read list because uh, when I was over uh, actually helping uh, some Christian groups think about how to combat Marxism in in their colleges uh, in South Africa last summer, uh, one of the professors recommended I really needed to look at Cooper. I still haven't done it, uh, but I, the book's there. And that okay. leaves me with no answer, but at least not sounding utterly ignorant. Incognito Luther
0: says, do you believe we are entering another Seminex situation with the Concordias? Which I think that was like kind of a Concordia in exile situation in the eighties, right?
1: The 70s, more or less. Yeah, 70s, that's, okay. that's right. Um, we're at a 50th anniversary for that. Just past last week, I think. So if a person were interested, uh, you could look for a, a little bit of searching about Seminex, and you'd find some current reflections on it. Uh, the answer is my analysis of what's going on at my Concordia, and perhaps the other Concordia's as well, is based on Marquardt's analysis of the Seminex situation. There are a couple key phrases in there, some that I used and probably overused a bit in the book because I think they deserve to be passed on. They're very necessary. Marquardt says this, so the Seminex kerfuffle was about a new hermeneutic. Let me avoid the terminology. I just wanted to show you I know it, uh, but the biblical interpretation principles and practice, right? The uh, The one biblical hermeneutic, by the way, is that thing from John five, these scriptures testify of me, Jesus says. But anyhow, um, some professors had brought in the notion that you had to know a certain kind of linguistics. I'm gonna say that linguistics is a social science area. You needed to learn a certain kind of linguistics as a pastor before you were fit to do your study of God's word for preaching and ministering to people. Anytime you hear somebody say, You have to do something before you can read God's word. That is a flare and and a whole avenue of red flags going up right there. You want to go just to the word. And only after that, you can go back and evaluate these hermeneutic um, schools of thought or anything. But you don't want to let anybody hold you back from the word. That's what was going on. These past young future pastors were being taught this. And Marquardt said of this, he pointed out, that the problem with this is that this is not a way of reading scripture that's drawn from the reading of scripture, letting God be the teacher, but this is actually imposing science over scripture. In Lutheran thought, I doubt that we've got, have cornered the market on this. We, we say, watch out for magisterial approaches to scripture and take a ministerial approach. Magisterial is from the Latin word for teacher. Don't presume to be a teacher of God and the Bible writers, rather submit yourself as a minister and a servant to that word. Well, anyhow, Marquardt said this. He said, uh, the problem is that the sciences, I'm going to interpose the social sciences like linguistics, have no room for authority or sacrosanct texts. Now, if you think about that, That actually is what woke Marxism is about. It's anarchic. It's opposed, not just to order generally, though that's the case too, but it's opposed to any normative, authoritative, or sacrosanct would be the technical word, texts. That's why um, the woke Marxists plaguing our country right now Uh, will not talk about the Declaration of Independence or really the Constitution unless they have to pretend to be following something. Especially, you'll notice that they never quote, and uh, if they have to quote it, they just fumble all over that founding proposition of the United States. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That's a sacrosanct text. I would say in part because it, it partakes of the biblical truth that god the creator is the ultimate authority but at the same time in a lesser sense you could call it an authoritative text for our country and so then my my concern is that this philosophy of language which i identified as the expressivist semiotic view takes people away from the scriptures among everything else the symptoms are there that all the great texts of the west have been censored or taken very lightly by many, many professors in many, many universities. But the outcome of that is this um, breakdown of our immunological system to these horrible, anarchic, um, upsetting, socially constructed notions of woke Marxism. And this has no place, no place at all in the university. If, if it were the case that two or three years ago, my university leadership didn't know what they're talking about and they just thought this was a good PR idea or something. I would say shame on them. I would also point out that's why you want actual professors to be hauled into administrative positions, not career administrators. But certainly enough of us have been documenting this. And, and now, you know, in this book, I've provided the analysis for, um, my own university there's no excuse for not knowing what's going on uh, i think john could probably point this out nor has anybody wanted to argue the point with me
0: <laughs>
1: i'm i'm available to be criticized if i'm not being faithful biblically and i'm cer- i've certainly made myself available in that book for people who want to take issue with the points of my or better marquart's analysis of our sorry situation in our universities right now
0: yeah, yeah. That's a common problem. In fact, I'm thinking of Dr. Russell Fuller right now from uh, a Southern Baptist university He's a very similar story to yours. And, um, he would debate anyone. They'll debate anyone on this. No, yeah, no one will debate him. Uh, they'll condemn him. You know, they'll ruin his reputation behind closed doors. They'll go, you know, send their, send people after him and stuff. They won't ever actually have a real discussion, which is somewhat discouraging. Uh, there's, there's one question. I think, uh, let, let's make this the last one. Um, Michael asks, how does one convince those who remember the glory days and refuse to see the clear evidence of apostasy? So in, in the LCMS, I'm assuming.
1: Yeah, I'm, I think I'm going to take that, if I may, John. I'm going to take that as a broader question. I think for any of us in, let's say, uh, Christian educational institutions, whether it's our grade schools, you know, from our churches or whatever, or um, right on up to our colleges, universities and seminaries. Or graduate schools. Um, Apostasy is the right word to use there. So stepping away from or stepping away from in the face of what you should be confessing and doing. The way to address it is um, if I can put a couple of my earlier answers together. The first thing is to provide a clear diagnosis on the basis of authoritative scripture. And then I know this is different from our for our different denominations but then there would be the authoritative creeds which probably all of us have in common um you know the apostles nicene athanasian and then our particular historical confessions especially about the scriptures and about the person and work of christ so that that is what is being apostasied away from and as i've suggested or said my argument is that the the heart of the matter is this attack on the students, perhaps the um, faculty's philosophy of language, not to recognize its external efficacious means of grace? Stuff. Um, I, I don't. I, I don't know if there are ears to hear on this. Um, I think I'll be forgiven for being an uh, older pastor if I just say I. I have been teaching for a while that I think we are have seen the the last days of Western civilization, and you should be able to tell that. Uh, not The social sciences have nothing to say on this, of course, because they just describe things in great detail and with a lot of metrics. But if you go normative, as uh, Roger Scruton in his books does, um, then you see that Western culture was moral judgments handed down from one generation to the next that were done according to Greek forms of thinking and with biblical content. So when we're no longer teaching the Bible and then no longer teaching the canonical Western texts, I would just point out the means by which we could recover or the means by which you can do faithful, good educating. um, Without those means, no, no recovery is going to happen. So my concern is with the diminution, the disrespect, the manhandling of scripture, the means of grace first, but then in a slightly lesser way, the authoritative doctrinal writings of the church. I know I said
0: that was our last question, uh, Dr. Shulls, but, so, uh, someone wrote in for, for $1.99, Tim Miller said, woke is a meaningless and nebulous term definition. And I think what they're getting at is, I don't know if it's the most well-constructed sentence there, but I, this is my guess is that, um, he's appealing to you as a philosopher of language and saying, isn't the term woke kind of a meaningless term as well? Like we're, we're, we want to, you know, you you understand what I'm saying? (laughs) I do. Yeah,
1: thanks, Tim. No, it's a great question. And, you know, if this is our last one, first act of the mind, right? First obligation we owe each other is to define the terms that are at issue. Only then can we go on to state the statements, the propositions, judge whether they're true or false, and then we can have our discussion or argument. So that's just a brilliant question to be asking right about here. You'll notice in the subtitle for the book and in the way I've been talking, I haven't been saying woke. I've been saying woke Marxism. So I am endeavoring to define things clearly. I believe I do that in the book, but Tim, you have a look and you know, send me a line if you don't think so. Maybe I can defend myself a little bit. But um, woke is a term that can be defined just like the term enlightenment can be defined. So the Enlightenment age, right, was doing the stuff that set the stage now for woke. Um, I would just say the the woke movement, if it's even right to talk about that, seems to gather together all sorts of people who are not nearly as, as bright and educated <laughs> or, or concerned about, or concerned about truth in conversation right. even uh, than the Enlightenment folks were. I mean, at least you got to respect Immanuel Kant though. He did this horrible thing of Censoring Christ and the Word out of his ethics, he was a Lutheran too, by the way. He grew up Lutheran, um, Lutheran Pietist. Um, that that's an absolutely horrible move, but at the same time, at least the man wrote some books and made some sense about what he was trying to argue for. And so we can go to work on that and see where he messed up. You know, um, so woke Marxism is, I think, the right way to do this. So what I've what I have been doing, Tim, is. I've not been uh, going gaga over reading things, though I I am a scholar, so I do some reading, uh, but I've been listening very carefully. And the woke people are generally folks who don't want to do first act of the mind any more than they want to do arguing. They don't want to define their terms. They want to redefine our terms. I think this is a quote from uh, hmm, maybe G.K. Chesterton that said, you know, we've come to the point where all, all our opponents have is there catchphrases and no philosophy whatsoever. I think that may be the case here, but by identifying the two together, and then Tim, please have a look at the book if you're at all interested, sounds like you are, Uh, see if I do a decent job of that. Those those are what I would call mutually reinforcing terms. Technically it would be neo-Marxism and technically you could probably say something like wokeism and just get away with it. But I actually am working to define that more precisely as best we can do with all of this stuff in flux from a bunch of people who think language is meaningless, (laughs) uh, how much, how much sense are you going to expect out of them? Yeah. It's so convenient because you can just change what you say and, you know, uh,
0: rewrite history if you want, but we, uh, we, we probably need to land the plane. I was really kind of hoping that I could figure out that, that you would tell us a little bit about the Roman soldier, but, uh, if if it's short, would you, would you mind? So you referenced that earlier, and because there's a soldier on the back of your book, what is why was the soldier there?
1: Yeah, so I'll I'll um do the very short version, and I will shamelessly mention John. I'd be glad to come back and talk about that and more of things anytime you'd like to. I really value the conversation. So this has to do with what um, our Roman Catholic neighbors call subsidiarity. I think you'll find uh, folks who are interested can find some of this online and some pretty interesting books. That's the basic principle that decisions for an institution should be made at the lowest level possible. I did some some digging around and thinking, and I've got uh, more than a little Latin in my background. So I um, I found out that that actually came from the acies triplex, the three line um, defense offense tactics that the Roman soldiers felt. so. Goes really quickly like this. The first two lines are the lines that normally did most of the fighting. So there are three lines of soldiers. When the first line became uh, weary, you know, just tired out, or uh, wounded and tired out, there was a clockwork maneuver that the, the Roman centurions oversaw, where the front line would become the second line and the second line would become the front line without skipping a beat and then the second line would take over you know all refreshed and and give the other guys a chance to bandage up or repair their shields or something and they just keep that up but now the question is so what happens if if the battle is just too tough or if the the people in those front two rows just don't have the heart for it as things go on then the third line the subsidiarity line would step up these would be from my reading anyhow these would be veteran Roman soldiers, the kind of guys who served in the legions, um, they get their citizenship as Romans because of their military service. They will not give up. They know how to do war, and they are never, ever, ever going to surrender. So I say the front two lines have failed. They are on the verge of surrendering if they haven't already surrendered. The leadership. It is up to those of us in the third line now the people to whom much has been given as lay people or just plain professors and pastors and stuff. It is up to us to step out there. What shape that may take, I don't know. The question, I think, I don't shouldn't presume to speak for your universities, but I will a little bit. I think that our Christian universities in the United States owe it to the rest of us to explain why they should continue with all of the surrendering and all the caving in and all the secularizing, why do they deserve to continue? Like T.S. Eliot asked of the Westerners at the start of World War II, all of this appeasement and so forth, why do we deserve? Got a lot of people angry with him, go ahead and get angry, but then answer the question, is there, is there a reason why our religious institutions deserve to continue?
0: Well, with that, uh, we have more questions coming in, but I would just encourage people, wh- they can find you through your website, right, Dr. Scholz? Yes. Okay. So if you go to, uh, I just showed it earlier, lutheranphilosopher.com, you can contact Dr. Scholz. You can ask him all the questions you want, questions coming in now about whether you're a nominalist and <laughs> all kinds of <laughs> yeah. things. So um, <laughs> I will leave that to people to contact you directly. You can get the book, uh, of course, on Amazon, Anatomy of an Implosion, and uh Thank you, Dr. Scholz. Appreciate you giving us some of your time. And um, I guess the last question I'll just ask in closing is how can people support you uh, and pray for you?
1: Oh, thanks. So um, I would welcome the prayers, John. I also think uh, if it's okay to put it this way, I think the good that we can do after a conversation like this is to insist on and foster conversations. Uh, that's the antidote to this anti-language approach from the woke Marxists, and I, I think we should insist on those conversations. For some of us, it will be with coworkers; for others of us, classmates; for some of us, as professors or pastors in our teaching and preaching, and for some of you, blessed folks who are connecting us all together online like this, uh, it's with more conversations like this. Uh, don't forget, I'm more than ready to come back uh, if I can can help with the topics all right well thank you
0: uh for that wonderful podcast god bless you uh dr souls and uh thank you everyone else for praying for me and i'm, I'm glad i got through it with my cold you could see i i pressed the cough button i think i missed it once <laughs> and, and i saw the expression on your face i was like oh no i'm gonna be the implosion uh you know but um anyway uh god bless you dr souls and everyone who's listening and until next time